Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about escaping execution. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's kind of macabre. Let's do it. Yeah, very Marie Antoinette this week. Um, of course, what we're talking about is uh, hands work, I guess I would call it, or implementation in the software space, or the sort of day-to-day operational stuff that, uh, that I mean, I know a lot of my uh, audiences came from. They're super familiar with it. They're probably still doing it. Uh, it's where you take someone's design or blueprint or architecture or strategy or plan, and you execute it. So it's it's like a usually more of a day to day thing. Um, it can look like projects. It can look like uh, all sorts of things. But it's a lot of work, <laughs> frankly, uh, which means it's very costly to provide. And it's something that I I try and teach people to leave behind to increase their altitude of involvement with their clients. So they're doing things that are at the strategic level or advisory or planning or capital D design or architecture, the high level stuff that would result in a blueprint-like thing, uh, and that would be delivered to someone else to do execution, uh, to execute the plan. And, well, oh, yeah, go ahead. It, no, what I was going to say, it, when you think about consulting, it, it's, it's similar but slightly different because what a lot of consultants want to do is they really want to focus on the strategy and then they they tend to be pulled somewhat into the execution and so a lot of the struggle is how much strategy do i do how much execution do i do and where do i find that balance for my own sanity mm-hmm. and where i want to take my business and my own cash flow right well yeah yeah that yeah. too so um, <laughs> that yeah. minor little detail yeah just that um and and that's the thing and that's the thing uh Folks who are trying to straddle both, um, it it really opens up the door. It it can be sort of sneak in when you're not paying attention, when you really want to be doing more strategy work. But then after that piece is over, or uh, if that piece is largely defined and there's like uh, marching orders, then you might just get a little request, and then all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. three weeks later or three months later, you're mired down in this day to day operations stuff. And your your uh, your client partner starts giving you orders and saying, you know, acting like you're an employee, and that's when you know you're that's when you know you're in the in the quicksand. Oh yeah, that I mean, we were talking about that before the show because you know we both had a bunch of situations in the last couple of weeks where we've heard about these situations, and you just you get stuck, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, I started this business to do strategy. And how did I get into this place? <laughs> right. And the tricky part is, most people I work with do execution, or I would call it implementation, like the software people, they they build stuff. And um, most of them do it on a kind of order taker basis where a client comes along and says, hey, we need this list of features. Can you build that? Or can you build us an iOS app that looks like this? And they're, yeah, I'd love to do that. And they do it. And there's not a lot of conversation around like, is this really the right thing to build? Like th- those decisions have already been made and it's they're usually uh, encounter the client downstream from all of the higher level strategic decisions, assuming there were any, but they're, they're, they show up after that. Uh, and when they start to recognize, folks that work with me have started to recognize that that's a treadmill and that they want, and, it's, and it becomes less fun after a while. It kind of like feels like Groundhog Day. They're just solving the same problems over and over again for different clients. And they'd rather get upstream because they see 
that the stuff that people are having them build is eventually it, it fails or it's the wrong thing to build or uh, the client didn't make the strategic decisions and they're driving the scope all over the place and it's way over budget and all of these problems will cause people to want to increase their altitude of involvement with the client to move up up higher in the organization and in the in earlier in the process so they can have some consultative or advisory direction over what gets built in the first place exactly right and the, the, here's the really tricky thing for people is when they are in that transition and they're not getting a lot of strategy work and also the strategy work in general revenue wise it's not going to be certainly at day one it's going to be nowhere near the kind of money you're getting to build software so it, it can be very lucrative but you have to build that up so how do you keep putting cheerios in the bowl between now and then as you're making the transformation so you generally people can't cold turkey right off and say you know what i'm not going to build houses anymore i'm going to design houses from now on and just like flip a switch it's it's generally people can't do that so what do you do when you're in that transition where you kind of have a foot in both worlds to to keep your keep up the boundaries so that you can spend time working on your business uh, and not just working on your client's business because that, that and that's the problem with uh, execution or implementation or the stuff at that build layer is that it tends to suck up all your time and then you don't have time left over to do uh, the marketing that you need to do to attract clients who want to talk to you about the higher level things. Yeah, I really want to hit on that boundaries idea, Jonathan, because I feel like that's what a lot of this is, is that we tend to like fall into this like little step by little step by little step. And in order to really steer clear of execution, we've got to put some big old boundaries in place. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, is it, and we can talk about like, you know, what are the signs when you see this where the boundary wall should be going up and locked? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, it comes from a good place. Like people who are really service oriented, they they want to help. Um, it's just a, it's like a desire to please, you know, especially if the if the request is something that's something you can, you're really good at. But it's like the, it's what you used to do or things you're trying to do less of and certainly something that isn't in scope for the particular engagement. It's very tempting to um, to just like, oh, I can take care of that, you know. Yes. Well, yeah. there's also this perfectionism that sometimes we have where we're like, you know, they're not going to do this the way that it needs to get done. Mm-hmm. Or as you well know, so, as I would. Yes. So I need to step in and at least show them the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. And then if they're not doing it the right way, then you maybe step in a little bit more. You know, it's a very slippery slope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, another thing that, that causes people to be blind to the signs, which we'll, we can talk about in a second, um, is that they they if they are new to doing strategy, it can feel like, you're not adding enough value yes. because there's so much profit. I'm not saying the prices are necessarily astronomical. They can be, but the the work, the amount of like what you would normally consider work if you're used to doing implementation is non-existent in comparison. Yes. And so, you know, if you were going to create and calculate an effective hourly rate, it would be like $2,000 an hour. And you feel it, it can, when you're new to it, it can feel like, Ugh, I didn't really earn that. Yeah, I just answered a few questions. Yeah, so I I really should. Or I'm afraid they're going to cancel the arrangement because I'm not doing anything. It it feels like like you're not doing anything uh, at first. 
but in fact, you're adding loads of value if you're good at if you're good at what you do. You know, let's just assume you're good at what you do. You're giving them good advice about stuff that's really important to them that they are not good at. It's really, really useful. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also you know, as you as you shift more into strategy and less execution, you know, the mix of your work changes and it feels different. Mm-hmm. And I think True. part of this is getting used to that it's okay to feel the way strategy makes you feel. Right? <laughs> yeah. That, oh, I'm not at this client's beck and call. Oh, I don't have to do that. I can show them how to do it, or I can tell them how to do it, or I can introduce them to a resource, but I don't have to do it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the minute you start like realizing that, it's, it's at least for me, it was freedom. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it does like sneak in. And so, so what are some of the warning signs that you would recommend people keep their eyes peeled for? Oh, the one I see with clients most often is this kind of like, uh oh, uh oh, what did I do? And it's always after the fact is like, because in the moment, They've agreed to something, and then after the fact, after the fact, and I mean pretty soon after the fact, like within an hour, <laughs> they're going, "Uh oh, it's that pit in the stomach, maybe a little sweat. It's that, oh my god, what have I done?" Right, right. So for me, I, I, there's a couple of things that, looking back uh, historically, are signs that that you're moving down the value chain, or that you're you're. You're moving out of the strategic phase. The strategic phase is over and you're slipping into execution mode. Um, one of them is when your initial buyer, so probably a, a higher level individual, perhaps a founder, an owner, uh, an SVP, CXO, something in there, uh, they stop showing up to the meetings if they're if you have meetings and it's just lower level employees. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a, a sign that your value has gone down. And that it's not that necessarily that you did anything wrong. You might just might be done. Like yeah. the, you, the thing that you needed to deliver, the thing that they needed from you, it could be over. Um, it, not always, but it's a sign. It's a it's a yellow flag. I would say, huh? I noticed, you know, I noticed that, uh, you know, Alice. I noticed you're not coming to the meetings anymore. Is you know, is this not a priority any longer? Or yeah. you know, so that kind of a thing. And it could be that they just trust you, but more likely, it's that the higher up. In the food chain, the less time you have, and you're going to put your attention where you think it needs to be. Mm-hmm. If you're past that point, you're not going to see Alice. Right, and that that depending on the nature of the engagement, that might be fine. But it's it's a it's something it's a change that would cause me to step back and sort of evaluate the situation. Um, a similar one is that uh, you you explicitly get handed off to lower level people. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, Alice says, okay, you're going to be working with Bob from now on. And, you know, Bob's like, whatever, Bob's just farther down the food chain, maybe reports to Alice, maybe reports to someone even lower down. And that's, again, it's one of those things that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it's it's a sign to me that you should take stock of the situation and uh, keep your eyes peeled for my next sign, which is when they start <laughs> CCing you on group emails. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden you're, you're an employee. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're that's Uh, death. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I hate that. Right. If you're expected to read through threads of emails exchanged between, you know, five people, you know, three internal employees and two external vendors and like, 
It's like, no, like if whenever I was doing advisory stuff, I would nip that in the bud ASAP and be like, uh, you know, I'd get, I'd get back to just to Alice and say, I see that you CC'd me on this message. Did you have a question? And if there's not like, oh, I just want you to read through it and, and like keep you up to speed, you know, I would, no, that's not, that's not happening. Usually with me. I've seen that happen though with, um, where it's something where you get handed off to the assistant. Mm -hmm. It's not the whole team, but the assistant. And that's fine if it's like scheduling a meeting or something. But I remember getting something from a client that was like, you know, work this out with so-and-so. Well, working it out was like a project. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I'm not working it out with your assistant. I work with you. Or I don't work. <laughs> it's like right. that simple. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a really good one. Yep. And so uh, do you have any other warning signs that, that occur to you that are sort of explicit? I mean, there's there's always the vibe. The vibe yeah, like, it's, uh, it's the vibe. I was trying to think if there's anything else. Um, yeah, it's. I, I, I guess the other one, I mean, it, maybe it's captured in the email, is, is really when you get turned over to a team, not so much a person, but a team. And the individual still communicating with you, but somehow he or she doesn't see you as the expert anymore. They see you as a member of the team. It's this, and you can feel it. It's yep. it's a very visceral thing, whether it's email or personal meetings or just the conversations. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like you can feel the the light switch. When they get to the point, and to me, that's when the strategy project is over. Right. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, okay, I get it. And and obviously that execution has to get done and it has to get done well. And depending on your business model, you may have a role in overseeing the execution, especially if you're trying to get out of execution and more to strategy. You know, that's one of the ways that you can start to to move. But uh, yeah, it's for me, it's like, oops, switches off, project's over. I'm not interested anymore. Right. And if you did, you use the word oversee, which is exactly the word that I use. So if, if uh, after I switched off of implementation, I switched over to upfront, like a strategic engagement that would morph into project oversight, not project management. Mm-hmm. And the metaphor I always use is that it would be like hiring me as an architect. And then when the house was getting built, I would show up and walk the site, uh, you know, periodically, whatever it is, weekly or whatever, and review things to make sure that it's getting built to code, built to the plan. Right. And there's a there's a major difference. That's not that's not getting involved operationally. There's a major difference between project oversight and project management, where a project manager, if we continue to use the building metaphor, the project manager would know the name of every single builder on that site. They would know everything about, a good one would know everything about the status of the project. They would know everything about the people involved. They would know all the timelines and all that stuff. They'd also know the code, the building code. Sure, right. Yeah. The architect needs to know that up to a point, but it's more about the plan. Yeah. So the architect is just there, is not there to meet anybody. It's not, not there to manage anybody and doesn't necessarily need to know anybody's name or who's going to be there tomorrow or when things are going to get delivered. They just need to walk around and be like, all right, this is, yes, they're doing this correctly. This is what the plan was. This is, this is what the business agreed to. This is what I designed or what we designed together. And they're doing a good job of it. And, you know, that, that is, it's low cost. It's high value to the right kinds of clients. 
and would allow is a good transition mentally for folks in my world because they're used to being the builders they're used to like you know doing the design stuff basically for free or hourly and then for the purpose of getting the build so that they can because it's it's generally a lot of money Mm -hmm. revenue wise it's not very profitable usually not not nearly as profitable as the upfront stuff but it's a lot of revenue and to shift out of that and just like deliver a strategy or an architecture or a migration plan or something like that and just leave is it's that's a hard shift for people and that and that can suck them into implementation and taking on pieces of pieces of of the building so like where the architect then shows up on site and is like framing walls like it's <laughs> you know it, it would be weird it would yeah. be weird if in that metaphor and it it Ideally, eventually, it would feel weird to you, dear listener, if you were like, you know, if you did all this strategic work, the idea of pounding, you know, all this, all these blueprints and the idea of like changing your outfit and, you know, pounding nails would just feel foreign. But in the in the shift, while your brain is still getting used to the new way it feels, the new identity almost, uh, walking the job site can keep you kind of connected feeling connected to it and feeling like you're still having some influence over the build piece that you used to do. That's the piece you would have done in the past. And it can still be really lucrative, really profitable because it doesn't take a lot of work for you to, you know, sit in a design review meeting or something like that to make sure that what was discussed three months ago is actually coming to fruition. Or if, if there were changes that you're involved in those sort of agile, you know, if it's an agile methodology and it's iterative and you're learning things and you need to change directions, you should still be in, in, involved in those decisions, but it doesn't mean you're just going to go in and like rip open a code editor and start building features. Well, yeah, and buried in there, what you were mentioning is that the execution is often the big bucks. Now, you know, look at McKinsey, they make a lot of money on strategy, but for regular, you know, regular people in the professions, there's a, typically a lot more money in execution than there is in strategy in terms of a single project, right? The strategy is a hundred thousand, the execution is two million or five million. So it is really hard to let go of that. But the other point that I think you really illustrated with your example is that when you move towards strategy, you become more and more like the architect. And what that means is the architect doesn't wait for somebody to call them. The architect is out marketing themselves, finding um, people that fit their definition of ideal clients to bring in, right? The, the carpenter is like every other carpenter, pretty much, unless maybe it's a finish, finishing carpenter. Am I using that term right? You know, the guy who comes in and does the beautiful cabinetry, for example. Yeah, a specialty versus, you know, any guy who's good with a hammer and nail and <laughs> nails and can stand up there. So it's really is a great metaphor for moving from building a piece of something or even building all of something to envisioning it to begin with. So when you're the architect, you, you have to have a lot more clients typically right mm -hmm. yes it's a yeah, different way of working it's a different mindset yes and the mindset that I, I use to illustrate this is shifting from thinking of yourself as someone who knows or who does something like i do thing to, to i know how to do thing so instead of like i build cabinets it's i know how to build cabinets 
and it opens up a world of new product possibilities for you when you think of, of products and service opportunities for you if you start thinking of yourself as that and package that expertise in a variety of ways. Uh, so the, but the danger, you know, to, to loop it back to the topic here, the danger is that you, get, you just keep getting sucked back in and uh, you don't see the warning signs and you end up mired down in this operational stuff, this day-to-day stuff where you're just getting more and more work piled on your plate because they're, your former partner in the client, on the client side is, now views you as an employee. So, uh, well, yeah, we didn't say in the warning signs, uh, it, it should be obvious, but if they're ordering you around, as you mentioned earlier, that's... Oh, yeah. It's like, why did we start our own business? Yeah. So nobody orders us around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how do you escape or how do you avoid this? What are the, what are, what are things you've done or you've done with clients to help them stay out of that quicksand? Well, you know, you teach people how to treat you is basically how I think about it. And so, and it's not, I think I never say, gee, you know, put up the barriers now and immediately, you know, shift over to this new way because that's jarring for everybody. Um, but what, what I found is it's all about boundary setting. Um, and I'll use an example with, uh, you know, I have one execution client left and there's hardly any execution left. It's pretty much all strategy now because what I've done is every time there's a request, can you do this? Say, Let's find somebody who can do that for you. And so, um, and that's the pushback. And so, you know, my helping is helping him to find somebody to do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take on a client like that today, but I'm like slowly converting him to a strategy client. <laughs> it, it is, it is. And I wouldn't do it if he wasn't such a special client and if I didn't really believe in what he's doing. And he's totally receptive. He knows what I'm doing. I mean, he can feel it. It's not like it's a secret. And he, he takes it good naturedly. And so I think maybe there's like, 10% of what I do with him is still falls into that. And I'm still looking for somebody to take over that last 10%. <laughs> but yeah, so so that would be one. How about yep. you? Yeah, clarity of expectations, you know, so like setting the expectations way, way, way up front about the nature of the engagement. And so, so if you said, if you were, were dear listener if you're in the situation where you're doing implementation or or uh, execution work and you want to get out of it i think it's really hard to do what rochelle just described it's really hard to do that and and probably uh, an easier approach in general would be to stick with uh, you know like maybe maybe get rid of one implementation client so you're doing less of that constant work so you just have one that's kind of keep your cash flow relatively stable and get new clients who as david c baker would say come in through the strategy door so they don't even know that you used to build stuff let's say you know like a like you that you used to be a copywriter and now you just do positioning or something or brand you know they you don't want them to even think of you in that way it's like staying out of the friend zone and just just presenting yourself as a romantic partner and that's yeah it. and take it off the website by the way take oh, it oh, off yeah. yeah yeah yeah. everywhere go and go rewrite it like you're a strategist mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's and it's hard it takes time to scrub all that stuff out there's like it can be in your domain name it can be in your email address it can be in your linkedin history it could be in your activity feeds your social media feeds it takes a while to scrub that that lower 
uh, altitude implementation stuff out of your digital presence. Um, but you can do it. It's not impossible. It just, you know, maybe take a month or two to, depending on how elaborate your online presence is. Uh, but setting setting the expectations up front very clearly about what it is that you're doing. So it, that that comes down to messaging and sales, you know, marketing sales, right? So with me, my bread and butter for years and years was an advisory retainer, which was paid in advance monthly uh, for access to my expertise. And there was the, the only bold text on the entire sales page for it was, I do not author shipping code. I might, because that was, that was the, that was the clear, huge line in the sand. That was the boundary. I might build a little proof of concept in an hour or two, or I might uh, coach somebody on a particular thing, or I might do a feasibility test to see if some mobile feature that somebody wanted would work across a wide variety of phones at the particular time. I had about 40 phones in my basement that I would do you know, feasibility tests on. So I would occasionally write code, but not shipping code. Mm, shipping code gotcha. anything that had have a bug tracker associated with it associated with it was that was my quicksand totally if, different level totally different level and yeah. and it's quicksand because now all of a sudden you're on the hook for some code that broke and huh? now i've got to log into a bug tra- or issue tracker or whatever they would call it now i have to be in their project management software it's like a whole new department mm-hmm. so it was you know for me it was really it was a really easy way to say no, I don't, I don't do that. You know, like, Oh, could you just jump in and help with that? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'd be like, you said, I'd be happy to find someone. It'd be easy for me to find someone to put you in touch with. And then you guys can work out an arrangement on your own. Like, Oh, you need an API built. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't do that. So mm-hmm. I, I can put you in touch with three people who are great at that. And you can negotiate with them individually because they, they do have the problem. They have the need. You know? Oh yeah. Right. So, and there are people out there that are loving doing the execution and you want to know those people. They're not your competition. They, in fact, they might be the ones who help you get out of having to do more execution than you want to. Right. Having somebody that you trust to hand off that old work to actually is a pro tip. I, it didn't occur to me, but uh, I can think of a couple of examples where, you know, I've got students who pivoted, they've increased their altitude, they've scrubbed their online presence. So now it's purely strategic. And they really, really clear boundary lines about what the engagements are. Uh, and uh, uh, but they still get these they'll still get these old leads. And uh, I, one was telling me recently that um, she, well, she, she had someone that she was handing off her old work to whose business is now transformed because because she's passing all these new leads. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like it's like the golden goose. She made their business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I could see that happening. It's a great situation to be in, and it's a win-win for you because now that's going to keep you out of that, the muck of getting, that you don't want to get sucked into, uh, but it allows you to, to satisfy your urge to service the client and do a good job for them and add value. You just don't have to do the hands work. So that I, I didn't even think to write that down in the show, in the notes ahead of time, but that's, that's a key. I think that's a key piece for a lot of people. Yeah, it's and it's the first time you hand something off that you could have done yourself. You're probably going to have this feeling like, oh, what did I just do? I just gave away $50,000, $100,000. And you take that deep breath. But as long as you've got a plan and you know you're going to focus more on strategy, you're going to enjoy the work a lot more. 
And, you know, you've got to let, usually you've got to let something go to make room to do that. Yep. Yeah. I literally just had this conversation with someone, you know, the student was like, oh, this is, you know, she actually said to me, it's like, talk me out of taking this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation um, a year or two ago with an agency owner and they did a lot of communication style stuff and they did not do strategy. And they would come in after the strategy had been decided and their typical project was, you know, maybe 300 to 500,000. And he had a small crew of employees and then a bigger crew of contractors that could adjust depending on the workload. And so he had decided that he wanted to work more towards strategy. And so he sold, I think, two strategy assignments and he hated them which is really interesting. I, I usually don't hear that. He liked the work, but he said, but it's a fraction of what I do. And I have to put all of my time into it and I can't offload things to my crew. And so he did too. And he said, and I can't really recommend us to do the implementation because then I'm not like this agnostic. Um, he said, I, this is not the right role for us. And, and the other thing that was funny is he got a lot of their work from other strategists. And he said, and then I realized a couple of the people who sent work to me were not feeling good that I was in that position. So he did two of them and stopped. Only client I've ever, well, he wasn't a client, only person I've ever talked to who really hated strategy work and went back to operations. But but he had a, a very clear brand, a very clear message, a very clear positioning. I mean, it was really, really well done, but their thing really was building it out. Yeah, and that that's a great point because that is a it's a valid business model. I mean, somebody needs to build it, so it's fine if that's what you want to do. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a particular mm-hmm. kind of business model. Yeah, and we've been you know the where you are going to be in the quicksand. That's where you live, so that's fine. So the, yeah, the they reason, love the quicksand. Yeah, it's fun. Like if if it's fun and you've got you know that that person had created leverage by having employees. If you're a but he couldn't do that without employees, right? Uh, he right. wouldn't have been able to do that. That business model is a trap if you're a soloist. Yeah, yeah. So uh, not that, again, not that you couldn't make a nice living at it, but it, it has a, a pretty low ceiling, all things It has considered. an expiration date on it usually. Right, yeah. Heaven forbid if you get sick of it, like then you're like, now what? Which definitely happens to a lot of people. Yeah. But there, you know, we've been talking a lot about strategy, but there's still uh, it probably is worth talking about other kinds of kinds of offerings that I see uh, people who are traditionally execu- in the execution level of the implementation phase where they go into more of a product space or more of a productized service space where by definition the boundaries are are like in neon lights, you know. There's mm-hmm. like here's the thing, here's how much it costs. Take it or leave it. You know? Yeah, and it's very, very, very clearly defined, and there would be no. It would be weird to imagine. I mean, I, I could imagine a situation where you're doing a productized service where it was like a recurring monthly thing. Where, um, oh, actually, you know what? That's a that's a different topic. But hold that thought. Uh, but if you have if you have non-recurring productized services and obviously products, um, then then pr- it's probably easier to stay out of the quicksand. But you're probably going down. You're going down a notch maybe or two orders of magnitude in the prices that you can set based on strategy stuff. So it's, again, it's just a different business model, but it is certainly one that can keep you out of the quicksand, 
if that makes sense. You know, I'm just I was struck by something a, f- a friend of mine sent to me, and it was a designer who sent a note to an email to all of her subscribers about why they were getting rid of their custom website option in favor of a productized service. It was one of the best emails I've ever seen. She did this beautiful job of laying it out, but let me try to get them. I haven't read it for a little bit, but as I recall, the basic message was we had this custom product, but what that meant is that we were platform agnostic. And so we're, we're designers. We're not developers. We're not programmers. And so, you know, a huge percentage of our work was on stuff that we don't do. You know, we had to deal with all of the complexities of finding somebody to program it and figure out what platform it was. And so we were spending less and less time on our differentiator, which is design. And the productized service allowed them to use one platform that they knew really, really well and focus on, guess what, design, which is what's really important to them. So I felt like by doing that, you know, she put her boundaries in big neon lights and I thought it was a brilliant move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yep, and it leads right into the the comment I bookmarked uh, a second ago about subscription. So I, I was just talking to someone, and I and I know there are more of these people out there, quite a few actually, um, that do implementation as a service instead of a project. So the the specific example that I'm thinking of. Um, uh, is a guy I was talking to on the, I was just on the soul of enterprise show and, and one of the folks who I was talking to there does is, is a, a web development shop. Basically they build websites for small businesses and it's a hundred bucks a month or whatever. You know, it's like a, a low cost per month, no setup fee. Uh, you just become a member of this service and they start working on your website. Really? And that's it. Yeah. So, and, and you would think, that after two months when they've, you know, he, he, the client has spent $200 or whatever it is that, and the website's, you know, done, you know, some WordPress site is up, then they would just be like, okay, done. See you later. Bye. But no one does. He said, he said, I, I'm, oh, it's all it. small businesses. Right. Interesting. Right. Do so they might, talk to each other? I don't know if there's a community aspect to it. Because I could see that. That would be really interesting. If I owned like a donut shop Mm -hmm. and I could see how other people were using their websites, that that would be interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not giving away any private details here. I don't don't think so. Um, But, you know, there are other people that do this. Knapsack, my favorite example of like a productized service, it's a one-off. It's kind of the opposite model where where they build you a website in one day on Squarespace. They specialized niche down on that particular platform so that they could just focus on design and delivering value and not like, you know, learning every new flavor of, of platform as they come out. But then what do they do after that? Then they have a monthly subscription for like tweaks to the website. So, you know, and since it's on a platform, they know that's very easy for them to do it. It's basically a support contract that's very low cost, but it gives them uh, ongoing revenue and, you know, ongoing subscription revenue after the initial build. So it's a, basically, it's a similar concept. They just have a, an upfront, you know, boom, like one day delivery and you have like a beautiful website, uh, where this other one is, it was fascinating to me where they do 
the the you know webs just like you just start paying a hundred bucks a month and we are your your webmaster you know the old right. school would right. just take care of your website. But you know? it is old school. That's what you want. I right. just think for small a small retail business. I mean, ignoring you know COVID and and all that. But sure. you're you've got all you can do to keep the doors open and the lights on. You don't want yeah. to worry about the website. And if right. you're, God forbid, a restaurant, you've got to update that thing all the time for your specials, your menu changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be worth more than $100 a month, I would imagine. Probably. Yeah. Product photography, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I've also talked to other people in, in other spaces, non-software spaces. Or we, we, I mean, we use in the past, we've used like podcast motor to, I mean, that's a, a subscription ongoing productized service that is not based on hours it's it's based on a unit it's based on a deliverable but it's not based on hours they can optimize as much as they want and it's and it doesn't decrease the amount of money we would pay them so you know this the idea of a subscription thing where you're doing execution is something i've been thinking about more and more lately i think it's really in, an interesting way i'm not sure if it's a I'm not sure if it's a way out of this quicksand but i feel like the quicksand is associated with projects and not so much with um it's not just execution. It feels more like projects to me. It, well, that that might just be my experience because I've done so many projects. So I, I probably just am thinking of it that way. Well, I kind of have the same problem. You know, I've lived in the projects right. for lived forever. The projects. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not those projects, but <laughs> the other projects. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, it's still execution no matter how you look at it, but it's a different way to draw a box around the execution. Yes. Any productized service, I mean, the whole productized piece of it is that it, it's got a label on the box. Here's yeah. what it's included. Yeah. And it's just super clear, you know, like we wouldn't expect podcast motor to like, I don't know, update our websites. You know what I mean? Like redesign, <laughs> redesign the website. It's like, that's not what they do. It's just not what they do. Yeah. But if you, if you're just a general contractor to back to the building metaphor, are you a general contractor? Yeah. Can you build a swing set? Yeah. Can you build a doghouse? Yeah. Can you build um, a bathroom on my, my uh, on master suite? Yeah. So then it's like, well, they can do everything. So after they're done with the, the master suite, then I'll, maybe they can assemble the, the swing set for me. Like that's clearly lower value. Uh, but if you're presenting yourself to the world as a sort of like generalist pair of hands, then it, it's almost like that has a lot to do. The expectations are just wrong. I mean, you're setting the opposite expectation. Yeah. Yeah. They're, it's different. It's There's something about being able to call the Jack or Jill of all trades versus the specialist. Yeah. You specialist. just don't. Yeah. I mean, like I don't call a PR specialist and ask them, um, gee, w- what platform should my website be on? <laughs> right. Good, good example. Yeah. yeah. I just wouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, so. and part of that is brand too, because, you know, we, we talk about positioning, you know, overall, but there's also positioning with every client that you take on. It's more subtle, but they look at you a certain way. If they were to talk about you to somebody else, they're going to focus on whatever is the highest value thing they're getting from you. Mm-hmm. You know, assuming the relationship is good. Yeah. That's what they're going to talk about. They're going to be, oh, that person is the best, you know, insert the blank or fill in the blank. Is it, you know, is it coach? Is it PR maven? You know, whatever it is. So they're, they, they look at you, you position yourself with that client. And every time you make a decision to do or not do something, you're inching your way towards a new positioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes back to, uh, 
it, the strategic nature of positioning, that it, it gives you a litmus test for deciding whether something is an opportunity or a distraction. It tells you what you should say no to and what you should say yes to. And, yep. and, and violating your strategy in a client engagement is, it can be really easy to do in these kind of transitional cases where, you know, temp for a temporary period of time, you're transitioning from implementation to strategy or execution to strategy or something else that's farther upstream mm -hmm. where you're just going to do design or you're just going to do architecture or you're just going to do migrations or whatever the things are. Uh, it can be, it's just a super slippery slope that uh, requires that you enforce your own boundaries, which a lot of people are not super great at um, <laughs> at that stage of the game. But being a specialist and presenting, presenting yourself to the world and also behind closed doors to your clients as a specialist uh, would just make it, it, it would make it increasingly weird for them to ask you something that would be out of scope or out of bounds of what your positioning is. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, and we can see that too by how we talk with clients, how we frame issues. Like if we, if we become known for framing issues strategically, that's how your client's going to look at you. Yep. Instead, if you say, oh, you know, we can't do that because this piece of code needs to go over here, whatever the, you know, if the first thing is, well, we can't do that, that always feels executional and operational to me. Mm -hmm. Right. You're not the keeper of the code. Well, you might be, but in that situation, you're no, not the keeper of the code, but you're, you are the client's sounding board for stri strategic decisions around your area of expertise. Mm. Yep. Yes. So yeah, I'm getting, I'm feeling myself getting sucked into talking about strategy, but I feel like it, yeah. it extends uh, to other types. Of, it really, it's a shift in business model. I think it's it's yeah. like if if you're going to shift whatever the shift is to whether it's whether it's to strategy or whether it's to something else, then that yeah it comes down to enforcing your own boundaries, setting the expectations up front so the client's not surprised by it because that's always bad, and then yeah. knowing what to do when when one of these little like one of these sneaky little requests comes <laughs> across the transom and it's like oh could you just read this email chain or whatever or could you just could you just yep. you know, set up my uh, drip account for me or whatever the, whatever the thing yeah. is. So it's, it, yeah. It, well, it's it actually drip is, is the right word. It's like drip, drip, drip is you get those requests. And I think I wrote a blog post about this in the last month. It's this idea that we make a bunch of small decisions and then all of a sudden we stop and we look back and go, oh, so here I am with a proposal out that I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Because it started as strategy and now it's become something different. Or maybe it's still strategy, but I have to bring in somebody else to do part of this work. And I'm not really making very much money on this anymore. And mm -hmm. oh, by the way, I thought I was going to be working with the CEO, but the CEO is not going to be involved in this. So it's a level down from where I usually work. So you start to, you know, you start to look backwards and, and it's always easiest backwards, looking mm -hmm. backwards. And you go, oh, yeah, I made this decision. I made this decision. It's just keep thinking about because sometimes even the smallest decisions and you make them in the moment because you're like, oh, I want to help so and so. I'll just do it. Right. It's easier if I just do it. Yeah. No. Oh, stop yourself when you hear yourself saying that yeah. to yourself. Yeah, when you think that, that's that's a big red flag. It'd just be easier for me to do it. It's like, okay. You know, uh, and then you'll always be the handmaiden. So what do you do? What would you do? I think we talked a bit about 
we talked quite a bit about avoiding these situations by setting clear boundaries, setting expectations, uh, having it flow through all of your marketing and sales communications, and then even in the delivery stage, it should still infuse all of your conversations. But what if you're stuck in one of these things? What what have you seen people do or what have you done in the past to kind of like climb out of the quicksand? Well, I, I had a client recently who, who pulled a proposal because after he sat with it for a while, he's, you know, he's like, I don't want to do this. And he, you know, he did the hard call. He called the, the client and said, I'm not going to be able to do this for you and backed out. So sometimes there's still a scenario where you can back out. Um, I, I really love it if, if where it's possible to find another solution that's not you. And that's frustrating sometimes because you may not have people to go to and it's a lot of work to find them. Um, I'm thinking of PR people in particular. It's always hard to find the right PR person for any specific person and, and situation. And so, you know, if I were trying to find a PR person for somebody, it might take me, you know, five hours to find somebody that I could comfortably recommend, maybe with a caveat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's how hard it is for certain things, but you do that because that's the price of getting too far into the quicksand, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's how I look at it. And, and to me, that's an integrity thing. I mean, if, if the, if the client is a jerk and they've, you know, and there's just like all kind of bad stuff happening, that's a different scenario, but where you've made decisions that have gotten you into the quicksand, I'm not saying you should go under never, ever, ever, but I think there's a way that you work yourself out. It's not just, you know, snapping your fingers and all is well. Mm-hmm. Well, that is an option sometimes, though. I mean, yes, yeah, right. Where you just exit. Yep. Yeah. And and you should always that should always be on the table in your mind, uh, because it could be a combination of the the thing for me, the jerk thing, I think, is really easy for for people to see whether whether or not they act on it and let the client go. Um, They usually know they should. And for whatever reason, they're they're kind of like married to them for the time being. But there's a and there's a middle ground. Well, so that's one end. The other end is what you just said, which is where it's your own fault. They're a great client. You like working with them, and you just need to spend the time to dig yourself out of the hole you're in. And then there's a, a middle ground where the the client is not not a jerk and not abusive, but they're definitely it's one of those fire drill clients where everything's super reactive. Oh. Everything's an emergency and hate those and you're you're the fireman and they're always ringing the alarm and that that to me that's a clear situation where you're not gonna you're not gonna fix it yeah that's an easy buy yeah so (laughs) goodbye yeah goodbye so and and by the nature of a client like that they are going to freak out they're going to freak out but I just say to students in this situation, it's like, okay, in 10 years, are you still going to be working for these people? And they're like, you know, and they're like, gasp, like, Ugh. like, well, something, something's, are you just going to wait for them to fire you? Or are you going to fire them? You know, like, and it becomes obvious what needs to be done. And it's just never fun. Obviously, it's not fun. And I still always recommend giving them some kind of off ramp, giving them some sort of you know, you're not going to leave them high and dry. You're going to transition them to someone else. You're going to, you know, make yourself available for a period of time to onboard a new person or to, you're going to do something, whatever is possible in the situation. Train, train their internal employees, um, 
give notice, you know, a week notice, two weeks notice, a month of notice, and not just you just cold turkey. All of the you can you can uh, still do a good job for them without being stuck forever. You know, until they either fire you or go under or whatever. Yes, we are not martyrs here. <laughs> that is that is not the goal. But yeah, yeah, no, I I, I agree. I, it's you've got to be able to say no. Um, I like to think that um, there's a way that we can exit professionally, but there will always be people that don't allow that. And, um, you know, the people who are going to, you know, light things on fire and you just have to do your level best to be calm and rational and say goodbye and mm-hmm. get out. Yeah. My my mantra here is polite but firm. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never, never do something that you're going to. I mean, uh, this is blatantly obvious advice. Uh, you know, don't do something you're going to regret in the heat of the moment. Like, duh. But but it happens so often that it's worth saying it's like. It's like, this is just basic hygiene for being a professional. But yeah, it, it's re- in a situation like that, it is tempting to um, to mirror their freak out back to them. Never. Don't do that. <laughs> Never. No, it, right. I meant what I said earlier. We teach people how to treat us. And so like if somebody started yelling at me, I would immediately go to the calm place yeah, me too. I do the same thing. And and they would understand very quickly that yelling was not going to work with me. Mm-hmm. And they don't do it twice. Right. You right? know what I do? If that, that is, I, I can only, th- I'm sure it's happened to me more than once, but I can only think of one time that it has happened in a professional context. Uh, but even in a, in a personal context, I, I have the same move, which is I just absolutely don't say a word. And I let the, the yelling hang in the air for like 30 seconds. And it's like, and you just see them crumble because they know they're being ridiculous. It's, it's never, I I have hardly ever had to do that. But I mean, saying nothing in a situation like that is really um, simple. It might not be easy to do, but it's really simple. And if you're afraid you're going to, it's better than saying like the wrong thing. I I have to tell this story. I just have to, this happened a long time ago and it was in person, would not happen virtually. And it was a a, a spinoff and tempers were high um, in the part of the leaders of the organization. There was so much stress. And we were working primarily with the head of human resources, who was a great guy. And I had a team of people that were working so hard. And one of them was a young woman. I do mean young, like she was maybe two years out of school. She was a brilliant writer. She'd worked all weekend. And I wound up with a guy that reported to the regular client standing in a room with this woman. And this guy started yelling, like literally at the top of his lungs, complaining about all this. And so I did what you what you had said. I stood there for a while and I thought, you know what? We're not doing this. So I let him finish. And then I just turned to him and said, if I ever hear you speak like that in front of my people again, I will report you. And he just looked at me and he stomped off and he never, he never did it again. But the beauty of it was that that woman saw somebody stand up for her and she was quiet and kind of shy Mm. and she, she would have taken it. Mm. I was like, no, you don't have to take that. So anyway, there are times when you have to do something like that. That's that's fair. 
I, I never, you know, I never dealt with him again. It was, it was awesome. And afterwards, I, my knees were shaking and I'm like, oh my God, I'm probably going to be fired. Oh my God. Oh my God. I had all that afterwards. But when you're in your own, you're running your own thing, you teach people how to treat you and being calm and advisor like, because that's what we are is awesome. That's mm-hmm. the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I suppose it's a long way. The whole episode is a long way of saying, <laughs> know your boundaries, communicate your boundaries, and then enforce your boundaries. And I, I almost think knowing your boundaries is as tricky as any of them because it's, yeah. if you're if you're a generalist uh, doing execution and you're used to that, the idea of boundaries is kind of like if someone's got a checkbook, I'm I'm good. Let's go. Let's do this. Uh, but I think those, I, hopefully the specifics that we've, and the stories we've told throughout the episode give people um, something a little more to go on than like knowing knowing and communicating and enforcing boundaries. Because I suppose it's obvious when you say it like that. Well, yeah, but I think what happens, because we're talking about when we're moving from a lot of execution to more and more strategy, is your boundaries change. I mean, not yeah. your personal boundaries, but in terms of what you're going to do and what you're not. And guess what? When you first start doing it, you're going to make some bad decisions. We all do. We've all done it. And you go, oh, you know, like I could have had a V8, right? I, <laughs> I could have done something different. And so next time you will. Right. That's the beauty of this. It's an iterative process, but it's not like we walk through with this hard and fast set of boundaries and we just instantly know what they are it's like we have to get knocked around a little bit sometimes i think to figure out what they are totally yep yeah just notice it you know remember it don't make the same mistakes over again yeah it's all we can do well it's not all we can do but (laughs) it's It's how it works (laughs) yeah yeah it's a it's a good practice to get in the habit of great all right if we got anything else to say on escaping execution no (laughs) Good bound. It was a good no. It was a firm no. I liked was it. that a firm no? Did Did you feel polite, my no? Polite but firm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.